It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Ewan Potts. Now, Caroline, I want to start the show getting our teeth into a big political issue, and that is dentistry. Oh, my gosh. You're pulling out Christmas cracker-worthy jokes. You should get a plaque. Um, All right, let's drill down into dentistry then. (laughs) All right, enough funds now. Okay, Uh, It's actually quite a serious issue. The Nuffield Trust says the NHS dentistry is at its most perilous point in its 75-year history. To quote the report today, full universal access to NHS dentistry has probably gone for good. Wow, that is a huge conclusion. The Nuffield Trust says that radical action will be needed in order to prevent further decline, either through further means means testing, major reforms to the dental contracts that exist, or both combined, plus a very large injection of funds. Mm, Another call for money on another public service. Well, Labour have done some surveys of dental surgeries on the scale of this problem. It says that in 245 constituencies, that's uh, more than a third of the total, there are now no NHS dentists who will take on adults at all. So no dentist across the entire constituency will take on Uh, adults who aren't already on their books. Look, I think this is absolutely staggering. I mean, I've been reading about just how many Brits are going abroad for dental care, you know, to cheaper places like Turkey. There was a massive drop-off in dentistry during the pandemic, of course, because um, a lot of the dentists had to close. There has been a rebound since then. But if you read this Nuffield Trust uh, report that is really uh, eye-watering, you realise that actually we have not returned to pre-pandemic levels. And the people that are suffering the most in terms of lack of dental care and intervention is children and also the most vulnerable people in society. That's according to Nuffield. Mm, yeah, and you read some really really horrible scare stories, don't you, of, uh, of people uh, doing teeth extractions themselves, really Oof. sort of stuff that really just makes you makes you wince. Look, I think this is a problem which is it isn't, hasn't been going on for years. It's been going on for decades, and it's almost as if when they set up the NHS, they decided that... that, that looking after your mouth and dental care was somehow not really intrinsic to the body which has always struck me as as rather odd Uh, and uh, there's always been a kind of view that uh, 
you know, dentistry is sort of extra and you can sort of pay more for that. So NHS should be free, except when it comes to your teeth and then you have to pay. And I've never really understood that distinction. And I, and I suppose uh, I suppose no government wants to kind of grasp that nettle. Well, the, I think that is shown up by the fact that actually, if you drill down into the data, you realise that there is actually an underspend in terms of um, the units of dental care that the NHS pays is that right? for. It is right. If you look at the Nuffield figures, there's an underspend. Why? Because that money is then used to show up other parts of the NHS. But it's also, you know, it's it's a really complex issue, just like social care, just like so many other issues um, that the government needs to deal with. It's very difficult. The charges for dentistry are growing well above inflation. You've got persistent inequalities in terms of access, a, a lot of regional differentiation between access, plus, of course, not enough dentists being trained. It's just a lot, a lot of problems that have built up over many years. Yeah, and of course, the sort of central problem, you know, not to not to reduce it to something simple, but the central problem is that dentists earn a lot of money and they're not willing to do work for the rates that the NHS wants to pay them, which are often quite low. Well, this is also because of the combined contracts, right, where it's one dentist who does both private and NHS work. But look, the pushback from government is that, you know, they say the Conservatives will take the long-term decisions to improve access to dental care with six million more dentist appointments uh, and the Conservatives building a brighter future for the country. I mean, they are Right, in the sense that there have been six million more dental appointments, but obviously it comes off the back of that pandemic low in terms of, uh, you know, the, the lack or the um, the great reduction that we saw in dental care over that period. Yeah, and a big problem with access in lots of parts of the country. So you heard that phrase there from the government's response to the issue around dentistry of making long-term decisions. I mean, we've heard that sort of repeated again mm. and again from Rishi Sunak. But accounts from the business department, again, for something that took place during the pandemic, show that a number of long-term bets that were initiated by Rishi Sunak when he was Chancellor have not paid off. Yeah, they actually lost close to £300 million. The Future Fund, which was set up by Rishi Sunak, Rishi Sunak when he was Chancellor. The Treasury actually called it the brainchild of Rishi Sunak. Those are their words. Made more than £1.1 billion of investments into startup companies during the pandemic. The problem is a number of them have gone sour and our senior economy reporter Philip Aldrich has been writing about them. Phil, well, a sex party firm, a cannabis products company and a lower league football club. I suppose these are eye-catching. Uh, and some of the investments pretty eclectic, uh, it's fair to say that they didn't go the way that Rishi Sunak might have wanted. Not, not yet. I mean, I suppose, it, it, you know, a venture capital portfolio, you know, it, it, one or two are supposed to make 100 times or right. 10, 10x or whatever. Um, but... Uh, so maybe maybe one or two will come good, but uh, yeah, at the moment the valuation. So the uh, the accounts for the business um, for Bayes, I can never remember what it stood for. The business and energy and energy yeah. and industrial strategy. And industrial strategy. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, and it's been changed. It's now split in two, and it's and so the problem for anymore, business yeah. and trade now um, uh, is uh, so those the accounts for twenty twenty two twenty three showed that basically the the 
they have an independent external valuer who does who 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 establishes the value of the portfolio. So this and is that, the future fund and how much it's fund, worth. Yeah, all of those investments in different exactly. Businesses. So one point one four billion was invested in a hundred was a, a one thousand one hundred ninety companies, um, uh, and it's now worth eight hundred and fifty one. Uh, Million, uh, so, so it's lost money. So it's lost close to three hundred million. The um, they I think it's some close to one hundred and fifty companies are, are insolvent. Um, so, I mean, so have definitely they're failed. Dead, they're, they're, yeah, they're they're dead and gone. Um, uh, there have been some uh, some companies where they've cashed out. So I, it's it's hard to work. It's hard to tell whether they've cashed out with a profit or whether they've they've just cashed out and taken the money and and what you know whatever they could take and and run. But it looks like. There's, it looks like they, they cashed out and, and had some losses. Um, and then there's been, you know, w- w- so the, the future fund was, um, the way it worked was that it was between 125,000 to 5 million pounds for each company was the, was the amount of money provided. Um, the, uh, it had to be match funded by a, pro- by a, private, uh, by a private investor. So, you, so the government or group of private investors. So the government was felt, Secure in the knowledge that this did have separate backing; it wasn't just doing it on its own, um, and they were convertible loans. So, so originally it was just a, it's it's just a loan, and it converts to equity at the point in which somebody else invests. So you get a new investment round. But what seems to be happening is that the convertibles are coming through, um, and the valuation that they're coming uh, they're getting converted into equity is uh, is significantly lower than the actual debt that was provided through the convertible loan itself. Um, so yeah, basically these uh, the You've got to remember that these investments were the ones that were not attracting venture capital money in the pandemic because it was an emergency scheme. So if you were a venture capital company and you thought company A is a great tech startup, you would put your money in that. But maybe you would have had a little bit more credit. And uh, uh, but because of the pandemic, you you didn't, you couldn't get access to the cash. So uh, you didn't put it into company B. And basically, what we got in the future fund is we're invested in a whole load of plan B's. Um, and so the, the idea that there's going to be some 10x or whatever in that type of return company seems uh, there, there may be a few, but um, uh, not that group. And, and remember, so these Fading, fading hopes then, basically. Yeah, it feels so, we like bet, it. so what, the government tried to help in the pandemic. I mean, venture capital is very risky, but did did the government bet on the wrong horses or what, well, this what is happened? The, it's a strange thing because actually it started off as a £250 million scheme and then it became a £1.14 billion scheme, venture capital scheme. And I think, and basically Rishi Sunak very, was very personally invested in, in this. Um, he, he definitely saw, you know, UK startups as quite an important area. And to his to his credit, I mean, if you they, a lot of these companies would have attracted some kind of investment round, but these are not tech bro companies like Bolton Wanderers. You know, a third or fourth division, you know, football league uh, uh, club is not what you would. And it's and um, I think Tom Reese, our colleague, it's his. Uh, I think it's his home team, and he says it's 134 years old. It's not. It's not a new venture. So yeah, and the idea also is it's not going to deliver enormous economic growth to the whole country it, or, the, yeah. the, or potential it was, growth. Yeah, exactly. I, think, I don't of... think there's, they, there is, the, the, they have looked at fraud. Uh, so I don't think there's many, f- f- any examples of fraud in there. Um, it looks like they've, they've estimated, I think, Bezos estimated about six million pounds of fraud um, losses. But the, um, but it is, it seems to have been quite bizarre in, in as much as the qualifying um, process uh, allowed 
sort of any any sort of small company family owned company or whatever to be able to access this this support and so the and and but we have to remember in the, you know in the grand scheme of things these were you know pandemic was obviously an extreme period the startups were particularly vulnerable because there was just no no cash available for companies which were not generating any form of profit so you know um and and revenues were pretty weak but um but also then there was all the bounce back loans mm. then there was the c builds and whatever so it was part of this kind of package of measures to help the business businesses survive and 80 billion was extended on on all the loan schemes and uh, Bayes accounts also showing that there was an estimate estimate of about 11 billion 11 to 12 billion of losses on that so in the context 300 million a quarter of the portfolio um, down a quarter of the portfolio that is a worse result uh, than 11 billion out of 80 billion uh, on on the bounce back loan schemes but I mean these are these are higher risk ventures this this fund was administered by the British Business Bank wasn't it which is also central to the government's plans to beef up our pensions by investing in higher growth companies do, do you think that we should be concerned that the the, the, the bba is uh the bbb rather is is involved with this um no i think i, I mean basically the british business bank is the sort of administration process you know centralizing administrative operation for um they've got other uh, they've got things like British Patient Capital, um, and they uh, they don't actually ha- they're not a they're not a bank despite their name. They don't have their own balance sheet. What they what they do is that they administer state money and put it with with like other venture capital companies through the British patient capital stuff or um, or get it invested into infrastructure or wherever wherever their uh, their particular priorities may be at that point. I, I think obviously that 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 as their role. It makes perfect sense for them to have been the sort of conduit for all the uh, all of mm. this money. Um, obviously, with the with the loans schemes like the bounce back loans, those were actually British Business Bank was a sort of administrative process. Pr- pr- process operator and and it, all the money went through the banks themselves Barclays HSBC NatWest Starling mm. a lot of money went uh, through and obviously it had all these government guarantees um, on them so that's why the losses are, are coming through for the state Phil it's a really interesting piece and fascinating analysis that you've done for us it's on the Bloomberg Terminal our senior economy reporter Philip Aldrich there thank you so much now it may be the last day of parliament for the year but the PM will not be chilling out and wrapping his presence today Rishi Sunak faces the the committee later today. Senior MPs will quiz him on a number of topics based around key themes. Well, joining us now in the studio is Bloomberg's Tiwa Adebayo. Now, Tiwa, this happens uh, three times a year, doesn't it? It's probably not something that the PM is looking forward to. Just remind us what the liaison committee is exactly. Yeah, well, if Rishi Sunak thought he could close up shop for Christmas, he's definitely not there yet. Um, liaison committees are really designed to scrutinise the government. So, you know, when you go for the final round of a job interview and you're faced with a panel of very important people, (laughs) that's uh, the parliamentary version of this. Um, In short, the pressure's really on and it might be some uncomfortable questioning for Rishi Sunak, given that his government has faced its fair share of challenges recently. He's going to have to muster up the strength to uh, face the committee after what's surely been an exhausting year. Um, The committee is made up of some very expert and senior MPs who uh, chair the select committees in the different areas of government. Um, Select committees, of course, are designed to check and report on the work of the government relating to specific topics. So they're highly specialised and the Prime Minister will be questioned by them for 
around 90 minutes. So it's going to be a very detailed inquiry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... It really is the sort of firing line for PMs. We certainly saw that under the Boris Johnson tenure. And also, I think that there's been quite a marked change in the liaison committee in terms of how much they prepare and sort of sequence the questioning. It's led by Sabrina Jenkin now, but Harriet Baldwin's on there. She's a regular on the programme, isn't she? What do you think the Prime Minister is likely to be asked about then at this event? Well, the committee has released some official documentation talking about the topic areas that Rishi Sunak will be questioned on. So those are split into global issues, economic issues and energy, focusing heavily around the recent COP28 conference. But of course, nothing is off limits. As I mentioned, these MPs represent every area of government work. So we should expect a very broad uh, scope of inquiry. Um, But when you think about the potential questions that could come out of those areas, it reads like a sort of worst hits for Rishi Sunak of the last few months. I mean, under global issues, there's the Israel-Gaza conflict. Um, There's also the controversial plans of the government to do with migration, the Rwanda plan. Um, Under the economy, they could be talking about benefits, reforms, and of course, those famous five key pledges, which are the Prime Minister's own measures of his success. Um, It doesn't help that so far he's only definitively kept his promise to harm inflation. Uh, Of course, the other pledges include things like growing the economy, making sure the national debt is falling and combating illegal migration. So I'm sure that the committee will be keen to quiz the Prime Minister on how he's getting on against those targets. Well, Rishi Sunak, of course, is somebody who likes to say he's very much across his brief. He describes himself as uh, a details man. I think it's probably fair to say he's got a very different style to his predecessor, but one. Boris Johnson had some very sticky moments at the liaison committee, not always across uh, all of the details. Do you think Rishi Sunak's going to have all the answers today? Well, Rishi Sunak is a details man, as you mentioned. I'm sure he'll have done his homework. But some of these questions might actually just be unanswerable. It's certainly going to be tricky. Um, And if we take Rishi Sunak's recent performances in Prime Minister's Question Time, where of course Keir Starmer has asked him about a number of these issues, one might say that he'd struggle. I mean, um, if we take migration, for example, just last month we heard that the ONS has revised up migration figures for 2022 to uh, 745,000. That's angered many of his own party. And that's coupled with all the controversy of the Rwanda bill, the government is of course still trying to get those deportation flights off the ground. It becomes very difficult to see a way through those questions um, and we might see him start to squirm a little bit. How important do you think his performance is though overall? I think that the liaison committee is uh, one of those crucial moments for a prime minister where their performance could in fact be career defining. Um, It's hard to forget those scenes of Boris Johnson from last year under the very heavy questioning as members of his cabinet were quitting left, right and centre. I think it was described by some media as a humiliating finale. So, of course, that's contributed to our lasting image of Boris Johnson and his premiership. So it's something that is very important and coming, of course, at the end of the year, it will maybe uh, be how people judge Rishi Sunak's 2023 and we'll stick with him going into the beginning of next year. I also think that the, that is 
Very true point. The other question, of course, is the composition of that liaison committee, because even from his own party, there are different factions who sit on the liaison committee. So uh, there could be you know, questions from all sides uh, to the prime minister, but also from the different factions within the conservatives, which may actually uh, be quite fascinating. Yeah. And these are the most kind of senior of senior, mm. aren't they? It's kind of like the, the, the grilling of grillings. Yeah, absolutely. It makes prime minister's questions look easy. Tiwa, thank you so much for being with us. That is Bloomberg's Tiwa Adebayo. Now on the show, we like to bring you up to date with some Bloombergy news items. Does the name ever given ring any bells? Now, if it doesn't, it, I'll remind you, it was the massive ship that ran aground and blocked the Suez Canal two years ago. We talked about it endlessly. It had loads of implications uh, for global trade. And that ended up uh, knocking up prices around the world. The incident actually disrupted £7 billion of trade in goods every day. Well, two years on, ships are avoiding that volatile and difficult region again. This time because of attacks on ships travelling near Yemen, the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, which, of course, is linked to the Israel-Hamas war, to Houthi rebels who are firing at ships from bases in Yemen. Uh, just as Rishi Sunak was hoping that inflation would come down, we might actually end up looking at a burst in the cost of shipping and therefore the cost of goods, frankly, that we all buy anywhere in the world, but particularly in Western countries. The UK today has announced that it is part of a new maritime task force aimed at patrol Trolling the region. And Lizzie Burden and I were speaking to retired British Navy Rear Admiral Chris Parry about this and just talking to him about how serious the threat is and how this rapid reaction force is going to behave, whether it's going to solve the issue or not. Have a listen to Chris Parry. I think what we have to appreciate uh, right up front is the uh, sea is the physical equivalent of the World Wide Web and it links every country to globalisation. And so these attacks are not simply on ships that are associated with Israel or indeed uh, the free world. They are associated with the whole international trading system. So just like when you get a ship stranded in the Suez Canal or any other maritime choke point is put under pressure like this, it affects practically every price, particularly uh, on the energy uh, and commodities markets. And what's really significant about uh, the Bab al-Mandeb, which is the strait that's uh, off uh, Yemen, is that most of the energy supplies for the free world tend to go that way uh, through the Suez Canal. So that has an effect on our prices in the free world. But what it doesn't do, of course, is have an effect on uh, prices in China or any other uh, eastern uh, country. Uh, so quite clearly, this is a, a strategy by Iran They've put uh, the Houthis up to this to put pressure on the uh, free world system to affect uh, decisions about support for Israel. It is not simply the Houthis acting on their own. Iran is behind this. But what do we need to know about the capabilities of the Houthis here? Well, the Houthis um, have been growing a capability mainly based on Iranian and Chinese uh, weapons. Uh, what they have is they have drones. Everybody's got drones now that can attack uh, things, as you've seen in uh, Ukraine and also in Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict. Um, they've also got ballistic missiles, um, which are those that go up into the exo-atmosphere and come down again. They're quite difficult to counter. And they've also got anti-ship missiles. They had a go at uh, a, um, an American warship recently, which promptly destroyed the launchers. Um, 
the balance of capability is overwhelmingly on the side of the free world navies. Uh, and I suspect soon that uh, America in particular, uh, but I think the whole Western uh, alliance is going to lose patience with the Houthis. And I suspect we'll see some strikes uh, on the land against the Houthi uh, capability and also perhaps their command leadership as well. Yeah, in, in that case, what do you make of the US, UK, Canada, France, this naval task force then? So what sort of actions do you see, do you envisage them taking and, and how quickly if there is action against, um, against Houthi points within Yemen, how soon might that happen? It's been building over the last few weeks. Well, this sort of... Uh Rapid coalition is not untypical of maritime forces. It's the sort of thing we put together to counter Somali pirates. Um, if one goes back a bit further, it's how we countered the Iranian attempts to close the Straits of Hormuz, um, put pressure on tankers there. Um, at the moment, I think the operation will be restricted to ensuring that, that those merchant ships that want to go through uh, to the Suez Canal past uh, Yemen, uh, the Bab al-Mandab Strait, are safe to do so. Uh, you mentioned yourself that uh, some, quite a lot of companies, BP, Maersk, others have rerouted around uh, the south of Africa. That has an effect on their uh, bottom line. It has an effect on uh, the world economy bottom line. So we won't, don't want to put up with that for too long. Um, but I suspect uh, unless the Houthis uh, decide that actually it's not in their interest, you're going to see a very rapid strike probably before Christmas. Recently in Georgia, a Silk Road forum about the middle corridor, and I imagine they'll be yeah. rubbing their hands at the prospect of an alternative trade route. But it doesn't seem like that's going to be a permanent viable option if this is going to be resolved quickly. It's a really good point. And what we have to do is see this as part of the strategy of Russia, China, Iran to develop their Eurasian economic, military and strategic networks. And uh, anything that can disrupt the free world's use of the oceans will help the Eurasian uh, autocrats to be able to do that. And I think people tend to see these sort of things in terms of regional or local issues, they're not. They're part of the grand strategy that is seeing these Eurasian autocrats of Russia, China, Iran and North Korea essentially confronting uh, and uh, basically seeing if they can test the patience uh, of the free world and, of course, its ability to move goods, commodities uh, and information around uh, the global space. That the US is mulling military action against the Houthis. What are the risks of that? Because that is also what we've spent many weeks discussing of a wider conflict within the Middle East. And what are the other chips that would be involved in that sort of action were the US to go down that road? I think, uh, as I said right now, it's a defensive posture to make sure the Houthis can't actually strike anything um, uh, in, in the uh, Red Sea and around the Bab al Mandeb. If uh, the Americans and their allies, and I should stress it is their allies as well, we've all got an interest in this, uh, do uh, seek to strike the Houthis, it will be a precise surgical strike, very much like the ones against Syria, if you remember, when Syria have been using chemical weapons. It'll be an ability to say to the Houthis, uh, you know, you're actually out of your box at the moment. Here's something to think about. You're out of your depth. If you try it again, we'll hammer you again. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Max Green. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Ewan Potts. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.